Psalm 25 is a psalm that is uh, maybe a little different than the last two psalms we've done. It's a psalm of, of praise. That's really the focus of this psalm is praising God. Even as we have done together this morning, as we have sung praises, this is one that is, is joyful. The king of glory is, is lifted up in this psalm. The context is that it's used, used in worship. God's people have sung this psalm throughout the, the generations. Um, there may be a few odd things as we get later on. There are some gates that do some, some speaking, and so we'll, we'll talk about what that, that means. But the, the main thing to see as we move into this psalm is that God's people together are praising their Savior. There's a call and response as they sort of respond to each other and point each other back to God and his, his glory. And so that is the hope this morning, that as these worshipers go forward in a procession in Psalm 24, we would join in that procession and that we would praise God together this morning. So would you stand for the reading of, of God's word? Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. Lord, as we turn to it this morning, as we sit under it, as we seek to, to learn from it, to follow it, Lord, we ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, um, use your word powerfully that you would shape us, that you would expose sin in our hearts, um, you would point us back to the wonder of who you are and your gospel truth. Lord, would you do that this morning? Would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our, our hearts together this morning? We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, summer is just around the corner, and I Kids, parents, there's probably this, this phrase that's going to come up somewhere in, in the summer. And it's sort of a, it's a dangerous phrase, at least when I grew up, it was. Um, you know, summer rolls around, day one, day two. And then you, you show up, go to your, your parents, and you say this, I'm, I'm bored, right? I, I mean, maybe it only takes like an afternoon before that, that happens. I'm, I'm bored. Now, now, some of you this morning might say, I, I wish I could be bored. I haven't been bored in 50 years. I've been busy. Um, but, but why, why is this word saying, I'm bored, dangerous? Well, growing up, it was dangerous because that meant that there was a list of chores. And you asked about once before you realized being bored meant here's your job assignment for the rest of the, rest of the day. It wasn't a let's process through this and figure out what you might want to do. It's I got work for you to do if you're bored. Now, that's probably good parenting. Um, we can talk about that later. But why would we talk about boredom when we come to a psalm like this? So I think the, the words, I am bored, are actually, they're actually dangerous words, not just for a kid to say to their parents, but it's a dangerous place for our souls to be. Some of us, 
may, might read a psalm like this. And, and when we get to the psalms that are elevated, these psalms of praise and wonder, and, and we say, that's, that's great. But we're, we're a little bored with it. Maybe there's a little bit of apathy behind our, our response to these psalms. We know the lines, we know the joy, and all of that to proclaim, but we feel maybe a disconnect from it. There's some apathy there. Maybe, maybe we really are joyful, but maybe there's just some sort of perfunctoriness in how we approach a psalm like this. Apathy is not caring about it in a deep, profound sort of way, a way that actually connects with what is true of, of God here. Maybe it's not just our, our approach to the psalms, but our approach to God himself, that there's some apathy wrapped up in that. Maybe some, some diagnostic questions to get get at that. Uh, maybe it's just you're going through the motions and showing up at church. Sort of routine. You come. It's just sort of something you, you do. Maybe your, your Bible reading, you really haven't read your Bible in, you know, two, four, six weeks, and, and you haven't really missed it. Maybe you know you should pray, and, but, but really, you know, at 7.30 on the night, you're, you're tired, and so prayer is the last thing that you want to do. How do, how do we deal with this, this apathy? Maybe another question we can ask this morning is, is why are you here this morning? On a Sunday morning, why, why are you here? Could be golfing. We've got good golf courses. You could be having breakfast. We've got good restaurants. You could, you could have chosen to do those things. And there's a part of us that sometimes wants to, to choose those things over the worship of, of God. And what this psalm will tell us this morning is in the midst of all of those things that could draw us away, all the apathy that sometimes we feel towards the spiritual truths of God is, is this reality that we are called to worship by God. God calls us to worship. God must be worshipped, and he called worshiped, and he calls us out of our apathy to join in this procession of saints who are worshiping him. To say this is what is valuable, this is what matters. And so we'll we'll unravel that this morning. This psalm begins with ascribing glory to God. Now, the context of this psalm, it's not provided. Sometimes you know at the top of a psalm it'll tell us exactly the, the situation. We just see that this is a psalm of, of David. Now, as we read through it, we see that there are certain events that, that might fit very closely with what is happening. One of those is when the Ark of the Covenant comes back into Jerusalem. Maybe you know the story, but the Ark was captured at one time by the, the Philistines. The Israelites had used it in battle, and they'd lost the battle, and the Ark was captured. And eventually the Ark is returned, and it gets shuffled around a few different places. But in this context, it's in the home of Obed-Edom, which is a fun name to say this this individual has the ark with him and david finally goes to reclaim the ark and bring it back in and, and what happens david goes with great rejoicing and song and and just this exuberant joy that seems to fit the the context here especially as we get in verses 7 through 10 of the group of people together with the ark a procession a parade if you will bringing glory to god praising him as they bring the ark in and all that's shaped around that is now a hymn that God's people have used throughout the generations to rejoice in, in who God is. The first verse of this, or first stanza of this psalm, verse 1 and 2, focuses on ascribing glory to God. Not focusing simply on what he has done, but his creation, who he is. Verse 1, the earth is the Lord's. It begins with this focus on God, that all that is, is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Not just sort of that he created, but everything. It's a picture of the teeming earth, 
full of life. All of this is, is God, the very fullness of it. God not only formed the world, but he filled it. And that is all of God's wonderful creation. It adds the world and those who dwell in it. Literally, it's a sense of the, the people world. It's not just sort of this beautiful creation, but it's the people that God has put into it. All of that is where the psalmist David begins to reflect on God's glory and his wonder. God declares that all of this is, is his. Every square inch is, is declared that it is God's. All that dwell therein. And why is this the case? Verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, that's maybe not the way we would talk about creation so much. Founded it upon the seas. It's not talking about sort of God trying to put the earth on some water that's moving. That's not the image here. But it's using some sort of ancient Near Eastern language to talk about how God created. And in fact, the words that are used here for both sea and river are words that Canaanites would use for their gods. They had a view that the gods had sort of fought against chaos to create the world. Well, the psalmist here sort of pokes into that just a little bit and says, God didn't have to fight anything. He didn't have to push back against chaos. He simply established it firmly, completely. It cannot move. This is what is true. This is the God that we worship. And, and the New Testament reminds us of some of this language. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that he sustains all things by the word of his power. That's where David begins. Even before he gets to God's presence in the ark, he reflects on the wonder just of, just of creation. How that should move us out of apathy towards the wonder of, of who God is is and what he has created. When I think of, of God's creation and sort of the wonder of it, there's, there's one moment, maybe you have views you've seen or, or things you've wit witnessed sort of in God's creation that remind you of this. A number of years ago, I had the chance to observe a kingfisher. You know, these birds that, that dive. And it's, it's just a beautiful thing if you've ever seen it. You can go on YouTube and watch, watch videos, but this bird is stationary on a branch and then just dives into the water. And it's this flash of sort of orange as they do it. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to see. One poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins, sort of reflected on God's creation this way. He said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. That's what David sees here, that the very world is charged with God's grandeur. Everywhere he looks, God has established it. It's teeming with life. This is what we are offered in this, this passage. And as we, as we reflect on the idea of, of apathy this morning and how sometimes that's part of our wrestle with, with God's word, David begins by, by asking us even to just be, be honest about where we are. Do we, do we look at creation and see sort of the wonder of God? Or do we need to use scripture and, and sort of look at it again and say, look at, look at the beauty of this. The morning that we had this morning, that these things are charged with God's grandeur. Not to take them for granted. Also to realize that the world is the Lord's and the, the fullness thereof. Well, that means everything you have. Everything you enjoy is God's. Now, you're a steward of those things. You've been given those things, but, but all of it is God's. The fullness of it, the grandeur of it is, is God. We live in God's world. When Paul quotes this passage in the New Testament, he does it in an interesting way to, to really show us that all that God has created is for us. And he's talking about, about food. Now, there's some ceremonial, sort of sacrificial stuff going on in that, that text, but it's pointing us to the idea that, that everything that God has given us is for our enjoyment. To go and enjoy good meals, to go and enjoy beautiful views, all of this is something that God has, has given us so that we would ascribe glory to God. 
that we would worship him, that we would see what he has done. And this passage positions us to acknowledge that we are dependent on him for everything we have. And that, that's a good place to be. That's how God created us, independence on him, wondering after him. And this is how David begins to unravel that, that apathy that is in our, in our hearts. To say, look at, look at God. Slow down. Look at what he has done. See the wonder of his creation. Not only do we sort of see this, this movement towards God's creation and wonder, then the question is asked, if this is who God is, if God is this wonderful creator in control of everything, sustaining all things, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. If this is God and his holiness, his wonder, if he is so majestic, so powerful that we ascribe glory to him, then, then how can we ascend to him? Now, what is this hill that is, is being talked about here? Well, initially, it's probably David that when you go into Jerusalem, Jerusalem is elevated. The temple is also elevated. So it's, it's likely looking at that sort of reality of where God is most present and most present in his description of himself in in the Old Testament, who is, who's going to approach God? Who is going to dwell with him is really the, the question that is asked. Picture this, this group of people in a pilgrimage or a procession towards Jerusalem and getting to a point and saying, well, well, how are we actually going to go there? Because God in his holiness is, is right there, and, and how can we get there? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in, in his holy place? It's, it's, a, it's a question that then the text answers us answers for us. But before it answers it, it should give us some introspection to say, really, who, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? I think sometimes in, in just the church culture that we've probably grown up in the last 40, 50 years, it's easy to say, well, of, of course I can, I can ascend the hill. There's Jesus and all those things, but, but, and that's true, and we'll, we'll get there. But before that, there's this moment of introspection to say, who, who can ascend the hill? This is who God is. In his wonder, in his majesty, who shall ascend to this holy place? Before the good news, it almost gets harder. Verse 4. This is who will ascend. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now that's a strong way to state that. Clean hands. Hands that have not done anything. Hands that are, that are innocent is the sense there of the cleanness. That haven't gripped onto things that are unholy. Not only does it care about our, our actions, our pure hands, it goes to our, our motives. That we would have a, a pure heart. The pure heart that without that, Matthew 5, 8, the beatitude reminds us, no one will see God. We need this holiness, this, this righteousness, this cleanliness, this innocence, this pureness. Not only is it our, our actions and our hearts, but then it goes to this, this soul, our very essence. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false? The word there, false, has a sense of, of emptiness, a sense of vanity. It's the same word used in the Ten Commandments for do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do not treat the name of the Lord with, with emptiness. This is what he reminds us of. So often we put our hearts, our souls, towards things that are, that are empty. That we focus on them. The, the opposite is found in Psalm 25 in verse 1 where it says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. That's what we should be doing. But in this moment we're asked, how often have we lifted up our souls to what is, what is false 
empty. The passage reminds us that we need to be clean. We need to, to find what is really going to give us the access to God that is, is offered in a moment in this, in this passage. Now, how do, we, how do we try to remedy this? Maybe there are many ways that we, we do this, and, and these are probably familiar categories for, for some of you, but when we see moments like in this, this text, we need to be reminded that, that we can't do this. Right? There are many ways that we try to sort of manufacture righteousness for ourselves. Let me list some of them for us this morning. Ways that we try to, to, to access God, to ascend that hill. Some of it's by, by comparison. Even if we know this isn't true, we're, we're all guilty of it at, at points to sort of compare ourselves to others and say, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just a little bit better, right, than, than so-and-so. We can, we can probably, if we're honest this morning, list about 20 people we think we're more righteous than. Probably can't. Maybe it's a longer list than 20. Or maybe it's sort of a justification by proximity. We're, we're, we're sort of, we're in the parade. We're, we're with God's people so surely we're going to just sort of, we'll sneak in with somebody else, right? We'll sneak in on our parents' coattails, our spouses' coattails, our, our church's coattails. We'll make it up the hill, right? Because we've sort of shown up enough that we're part of that. Or maybe you say, I've, I've put in a lot of effort. I've, I've tried to have clean hands. I've, I've tried to examine my motives. I've, I've really tried not to sort of lift up my soul to this emptiness. I've tried to focus on what's important. So, so I'm, 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 again... I'm going to make it up this, up this hill. The list could go on. Our belief that we have the right belief. We believe the right thing, so, so we're good. That's all we need. We just know we're starting to check a doctrinal box, and we're there. Or we might think just this is sort of a, everyone's going to make it. God's a God of love, right? Sort of this justification by death view that we're all going to make it up the hill when we die. So we're, we're good. The psalm asks us to, to slow down and consider the wonder of who God is. And to really ask the question, who will ascend the hill? How can we do this? How can we move forward? Verse 5 begins to give us the good news. He, verse 5, will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now we need to understand what the text is doing here. It's not saying, so if you have clean hands, pure hearts, I'll do all these things, then God is going to gift you righteousness. If you did all those things, you wouldn't need God to gift you righteousness. The psalmist is reminding us where our righteousness comes from. The righteousness from God of his salvation. This is like the, the passage Reuben read for us this morning, that our righteousness is given to us from, from faith, from first to last. It is, it is a gift for us. This is how we, we will move forward. As we seek God, as we seek him, and know that we are sinners in need of this righteousness, that's how we, we ascend the hill. That's how, as verse 5 begins, we will receive the blessing from the Lord. Now, now what is that blessing? The blessing from the Lord isn't talking about, man, you seek God in his righteousness, and he's going to reward you, and, and you're going to you know, have all the material stuff that you need. The blessing here, one of the, the sort of the first blessings for God's people in Scripture is that ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make what? His, his face to shine upon you. And we see that reflected in verse 6 where it says, Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Those who seek this, seek God in faith with the righteousness given to us, will receive the blessing of the Lord of, of seeing God's faith, of, of being with him of knowing the wonder of the salvation that is offered 
to us. This is the, the gift of righteousness. This is how we ascend the hill. This is how we move forward and, and seek his face. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him. Now, this isn't talking simply about some generation in time that is finally going to be faithful and really move the ball forward. It's talking about the group of people together. The generation there is really just a, a group gathered who are to, to follow, who are to join in this, this parade of glory, realizing that the only way we get up the hill is because we're given righteousness from God and that we seek him, that we actually move forward towards him, seeking his, his face. That's what we're offered here. This is also where we begin to see the, the antidote to our apathy. The antidote to our apathy is, is here in the righteousness from the God of his salvation. Our, the antidote is this reality that we, we actually have to ask these questions and remind ourselves this morning of what is true. That we, we are sinners with hands that aren't clean. Souls that are often lifted up to things that are, are valueless and empty. And when we begin to see that that is, that is who we are apart from Christ, and then we see the gift of this righteousness that we will ascend to glory with him to see his face, that begins to chip away at our apathy. And this psalm is, is offered not just as a one-time sort of shot in the arm for our apathy, but something to come to again, as God's people came to it again and again to see sort of the truth and have it form and shape our hearts towards the God who offers us himself. Now, we've been talking a little bit about a, a procession and a parade. Uh, when we lived in South Carolina, we went to a, a Christmas parade, similar to some of the Christmas parades we, we have around here. And this one, for it was a, it was a fairly long parade for a town of about 10,000, and it went on the first probably 10 minutes were, were quite impressive. Really well done floats, great sort of bands, everything. We were like, wow, this is, this is good. About the halfway mark, though, in the parade, there was a, there was a definite shift in the quality of, of the floats. And as we went further down, it, we, towards the end, we realized that every landscaping company in town was just gonna drive their, their work truck down there. Every, they, they bought a new dump truck, it was in the parade. Everything was in there. And so we stayed, we, we watched, but there was this moment where we sort of realized, here's sort of the, the forward part of the parade, and, and then here's the, the rear guard. Just sort of, you know, we want some free publicity, we're gonna, we're gonna join in the parade as it were. Now, if, if we extrapolate that out into this passage, now picture again the scene, a group of pilgrims going up to Jerusalem to worship God. There, there are some people that are, you could call stragglers. Some people, maybe like you this morning, that, that maybe aren't in that sort of forward march and, and really in, in the full wonderment of this, this psalm, but saying, I, I believe this, but I, I'm struggling. I've got some questions. I've got some, some apathy that I, that I need to work through. This is where the, the wonderment of how we move forward in this procession begins to confront that apathy. The fact that you actually, as a straggler, are, are part of what God is doing in faith, in Christ, believing in the gospel, that you, you are put into this triumphal parade, so to speak, is, is what gives us hope. What gives us great encouragement that that we aren't alone, that we aren't sort of just going to fall off the back end of the procession, but that we are brought in, and we who seek God's face will, will see him, that we will ascend to glory because of what he has, he has offered to us. And for some of us, maybe in our apathy, we need to realize that our apathy is, is something that is very serious. 
It's not something that just sort of, yeah, everybody struggles with, but it's actually a, a pattern of sin in our lives that needs to be repented of because God deserves all the wonder and the glory. All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is to him. Our apathy is not something to be treated lightly. I read, read recently this, this quote from a Christian theologian named Unsi Anzor, who wrote a book on apathy, and he says this, Most of us struggle with sin, but it's not the hostility of a raised fist, but a gaping yawn. A gaping yawn. Are you guilty this morning of a gaping yawn to the things of God? And I, I think we all have been. We've, we've looked at something that is wonderful and said, oh yeah, I know that. There's nothing, nothing to see here. This passage reminds us that, that we, we can ascend the hill because we are given God's righteousness that we can move forward and seek his face. And, and it calls us to do that, to actually seek God's face. When, when we have times of dryness in our devotional life, to, to continue to seek his face, not to sort of just put it on the shelf. Now, I do, do want to note that there, there are times in our life where there are other things involved that make growing spiritually difficult. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's grief. Those things can, can look like apathy, but they're different. So if that's, that's you this morning, just know that there's, there's a distinction there. But for many of us, we, we simply need to repent of our apathy and come again to the gospel and move forward with the wonder of what God is doing, that we might be, be healed. And, and, and know that we, we are moved as his children out of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That we can live and put on the new selves and actually have clean hands and pursue with pure hearts the things of God. That, that in the power of his spirit, we can do that. We are free to do that. We are free to say no to sin and yes to righteousness, to seek after, to seek after God. The final part of this psalm gives us an arrival in glory. It's the arrival of the ark into the, the temple or the tabernacle at the time, and it's, it's wonderful. Now, what's going on here, just for a moment? There's some gates that are going to say some stuff that sounds a little bit odd. What's going on? The, the most likely explanation of what is happening here is the procession, the parade, has, has reached either the gates of Jerusalem or the gates of the temple and are now being asked some questions. There's a sort of a call and response that will go on here. Maybe it's the, the guards at the gates. That's probably the most likely uh, phrase for who is, who is speaking here. Now, the, the, the point here is not somehow to sort of, well, can, can God actually get in? Can the ark get in? No, it's, it's to slow down and stop and to ask ourselves what is, what is going on here. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So the people coming forward with the ark. Verse 8, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. It's a picture of God and all his strength and all his victory coming in to say, I, I, I have won. I have defeated the enemies. In the context, it's the Philistine, it's the Amorites, it's all those who have sort of pressed in on God's people. And now God is saying, here, I am the one who is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The very first sort of poetry we see for God's people in Exodus 15 as they cross the Red Sea uses the same language of a mighty warrior. A God who has won. A God who has been victorious. And so this is the conversation that we see as God arrives here to be worshipped. Verse 9 asks the same question. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. 
He is the King of glory. The Lord of hosts is also the Lord of, Lord of armies, the Lord of multitudes, the one who is greatly powerful and in control of all things. He is the King of glory. This word glory is, is one of weightiness. He is worthy. He is able to hold up to everything that is, is put on him. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our glory. Now, this is, this is wonderful, right? To see God come in in his victory, to move our hearts, to worship him in this way. But it gets, it gets even better for us as Christians. As those who know Jesus, there's, there's a little bit more that we can see here. Christ fulfills what happens here. Here we see sort of in a dim reflection what is, what is true. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What, what we see in this Psalm 24 is a picture of uh, the ark going in, and, and there's wonder and glory, but what we see in Hebrews 9 is Christ coming in, not to a temple or a tabernacle, but to heaven itself. The church has often used this Psalm 24 on Ascension Sunday, sort of the time where Jesus ascended to heaven, and, and it points us to this reality that not only in an earthly sense, but in a final spiritual, eternal sense, Christ has entered in to the heavenly places. There's one more good piece of news that the New Testament offers us as we look at this, this psalm. As, as Christ does this, as Christ goes into the heavens and is there at the right hand of God, there's something that's also true of, true of us. If we have faith in Christ, if we are joined to Christ, then what is true of Jesus is true of us. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That this is, this is what is true of us. Now that triumphal procession doesn't mean all your problems are going to go away. It doesn't mean that every difficulty is sort of minimized. But it gives us this picture of what is really true. That we have a God who has defeated sin. And as we express repentance of that sin, we are joined to him and, and we are given this reality that we experience in part now and will fully experience in the new heavens and the new earth. And this should move our hearts to, to praise out of apathy towards what is right and good. I read a book on uh, productivity recently. I don't know if you ever read books on productivity. I, I think it might be one of the least productive things you can do. But this book, the title is, is catching. It's 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. The whole premise of this book, I'll save you the time, you don't have to read it, is the old analogy, right, where you have a jar, and this is your life, and then you've got big rocks and sand, right? And you have to put the big rocks in first, and then you can put the sand in, and that's the only way you can fit everything into your life and be happy and satisfied. Well, this book sort of says that's not how this works. Why? Because there are too many big rocks. You have to leave some of the big rocks on the table, there are some things that are just more important than others, and you have to figure that out with the 4,000 weeks that God has given you. Now, what does that have to do with this passage? The big rock, biggest rock in our life is this giving praise to God, this worship of God. Now, I'm not just talking about Sunday morning. I'm talking about every part of our life, whether you're a parent, a plumber, a painter, whatever it might be, that all of your life is lived to give glory to God. And that you would see that as, as supremely valuable. 
And as you come on Sunday morning, what we do each Sunday is, is a representation of the gospel. We move through the gospel movement. We move through what this psalm did this morning. We're called to worship because of God's glory. We are examined by God's word. And then we're restored for his service through the word, through the meal. We're pointed to what is true. We're pointed to our need again and again of the gospel. So this morning, we're called to join in the parade. Join in the parade of glory that God is, that is offering. And we together would sing together that we would praise him. On Sunday morning, one of the most encouraging things sometimes is to look around this room and to see you singing. To look at other believers singing, to know that you have had difficult weeks. Weeks that might not have been perfect, but weeks that you know are, are used by God in this triumphal procession. Last thing to say. If you're one of those stragglers, one who still feels the apathy, the struggle, the, the, the sort of fight against sin, Psalm 3 is encouraging. In Psalm 3, verse 3, it says that he, that is God, is the lifter of your heads. Even as these gates are lifted up to give praise, God in his mercy and his grace lifts you up. Because the gospel is true. We can have hope even in times of struggle, even when apathy seems real. We can repent and move to the wonder of the gospel together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you work this truth deep in our hearts? Lord, by the power of your spirit, you would show us that the worship of you, that the glory of you is supremely valuable. Lord, would we repent of our, our tepid worship, our, our disinterest in the things that are true of you. Lord, when we have struggled there, we would run to you, that we would seek your face, not, not as guilty people who somehow need to appease you, but as people who say, I, I need to not lift up my soul to what is empty, but I need to lift up my soul to you. That you would fill me. That I would be nourished by the wonderful truth of your word. I pray this in your name. Amen. Let's take a moment and we'll prepare to